Guitarathon is the greatest guitar sale on earth, and it's happening now. Get massive savings on a huge selection of electric and acoustic guitars, basses, amps, pedals, and other accessories. Get select Ernie Ball strings, three for ten. Save $100 on a Fender Special Edition Strat, or get a Yamaha acoustic for just $199. Plus, get special financing on select major brands. Don't miss these incredible deals. Available online and in store now through November 1st. Guitarathon, only at Guitar Center. Find your sound. You are Locked On Heat, your daily Miami Heat podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. All right, let's do this. Welcome to Locked On Heat, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. My name is Wes Goldberg. I'm here as always with David Ramil, and we are opening up the mailbag on this fine Monday morning. Recording this on a Sunday, but you'll listen to it on Monday. Uh, So let's get right into it. The first question from Taylor Monk. Who would be the best first-round matchup for the Heat? I'm not saying that they would beat the the Celtics, but both the Heat and Celtics are similar in a lot of ways, both playing at their peaks, making the most of their roster, and both with amazing coaches. Spover Stevens would be entertaining. Um, so right now, if the Heat were to get the eighth seed, they would obviously be playing the Cavaliers, but Boston is just two games back of Cleveland. For first place, uh, I don't know how many more games the Cavaliers plan on resting LeBron and Kyrie like they did against the Heat. Miami was able to beat the Cav- the Cavaliers on Saturday. But uh, look, it's not out out of the question. The Celtics are two and a half games back. The Heat are a game back at eighth place. Uh, and the other option here, of course, is that Miami gets all the way up to the seventh seed and is able to play Boston because... You know they're they're a game and a half back of Detroit, but they're only two and a half. There's they're two and a half games back of Chicago, and there's enough time to close that gap. Dave, what do you think about a potential Celtics Heat first round matchup? Well, I think it's unlikely. First of all, I yeah. mean, I think you're right that there's it's possible mathematically. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I was thinking from this perspective of the question that maybe it would be better to look at both matchups and mm-hmm. seeing how Miami might fare against that because. I, I don't know. I, I think obviously Miami would be overmatched on both. And, you know, although Taylor makes some good points that there's compatibility with Boston, I just think Boston's depth and talent is superior. I mean, you just look at Isaiah Thomas's individual performance against us uh, this season when he scored a career high 52 points. I, I mean, that's uh, something of concern, I think, for Heat fans and for the team itself. So, I mean, maybe if you want to look at it from that perspective and see how Miami might fare against Cleveland or versus how they might fare against Boston. Well, look, I mean, I think with Cleveland, Miami's played Cleveland pretty tough for the most part. And they're certainly not as good as them. And when Cleveland's healthy and in playoff mode, there's not going to be any beating them. I don't... I'm coming. Well, at we've this talked from, before. We've talked before that they might be able to escape with a win. Yeah, and I think that's what we're looking at, regardless of who they play in the playoffs if they're in there. Um, look, would it be maybe? Maybe we should look at this from an entertainment sense and not so much of a can they win win sense. Because as as okay. hopeful as I want to be, you know, the only the only way the Heat win. Look, they're not as talented as. Cleveland, obviously, they're not as talented or nor as deep as Boston. They're just not. So right. the only way that Miami wins is if they get really hot shooting, and either Cleveland or Boston just completely like goes freezing ice cold shooting, and that's the only way Miami's able to win. But look, Miami plays good defense or injury, right? Yeah. So yes. barring some weird circumstance, the Heat 
And this is what I love about the NBA in general is that the best team usually wins. And I think a lot of people in the Sloan the Sloan conference this last week, like there was some yes. talk about Adam Silver and his conversation about parity, and he said that look, uh, this is we don't have as much parity as the NFL, nor will we ever have as much parity as the NFL. My job isn't to create parity. My job is to basically, and I'm paraphrasing, my job is to create the opportunity for parity. And that's, of course, through the CBA and all sorts of other mechanisms. But in general, what I love about the NBA is that the best team wins. And maybe people don't like that. Maybe people don't like being able to predict that it's going to be Warriors, Cavaliers in the finals. But for me, I enjoy that the better team wins. I, I think that that's very different than the NFL, than baseball, than college basketball. I think, it, And I appreciate that. But in that same vein, a first-round matchup for the Heat isn't going to go well, probably, for them. Uh, yeah. I think that maybe it'll be entertaining to see them play Cleveland. Look, I, Hassan Whiteside can be the best player on the floor most nights, you know? Like, there are, there are night—when when he gets at his peak dominance, and this is what I think Whiteside's real value is, is just his ceiling. And every once in a while, he'll touch his ceiling. And maybe doesn't do it as often as we'd like— but he gets there every once in a while. And when he does, he could be the most dominating player on the floor. Maybe any out of anybody in this first round other than LeBron. And Kyrie when he hits his peak, too. But mm-hmm. um, against Boston, Whiteside could, in a game, be the best player on the floor in that series against Boston. That is potentially there. I still, as much as much love as Brad Stevens gets, I think Eric Spolster is still a better coach. He's just got a, a more of a track record, and he's got more winning experience. And you know, but Stevens is still a good coach. And as far as like Goran Dragic to Isaiah Thomas matchup, look, Isaiah Thomas is, I think, clearly the better scorer. Just look at his numbers and what he's been able to do this season. I don't want to take anything away from Isaiah Thomas, but Goran Dragic is right there as far as just a ball creator and shot creator and a scorer, just on the offensive end. And he's probably a little bit better on defense, and uh, oh, definitely, just because of his size, right, and his strength. Yeah. But yeah, in general, Boston is just so deep. So, and Miami really isn't. You know, we're looking at James Johnson, Tyler Johnson, Willie Reed off the bench, and that's a nice top eight. But and Josh Richardson, we could throw him in there for a top nine. But mm. Boston's just got so much depth with guys that can do multiple things off the bench. Uh, they're more versatile. So. Uh, look, I don't think that the Heat would beat any of them, but it would be entertaining to play any of them. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. From that perspective, then, especially given the uh, events of Saturday night uh, towards the waning moments of the game when Roddy Magruder and J.R. Smith seem to have a, a little back and forth there. For, what do you make of that, first of all? Because, I, I mean, I'll give my take in a second, but I'm curious how you, what you think of, of the whole interaction there. Well, it started with the Rodney Magruder dunk, and then... Right. And then Quebec he dunked and over, yeah, over Channing Fry. Yeah, I mean, he leapt over a guy that's half a foot taller than him. Oh, yeah. Um, And just yammed it on him. And in the waning kind of, moments of a game where they were yeah. already up 20-something points. See, there was at least more than a minute left, right? So I don't have right. that much of a problem with it. I have an issue with it when there's like 20 seconds left. But there's more than a minute left. You've got the jam. Go for it. I don't have a problem with it. I've watched it a few times. And he shoves him in the back. And it was kind of reminded me, and I can't believe I'm comparing Ronnie Magruder to Shaquille O'Neal. But what was, when Shaquille O'Neal... Over Chris Dudley? Over Chris Dudley. And he just like shoved Dudley over. <laughs> that was like Rodney Magruder shacking Channing Fry. 
I don't know if he just was going... Like, look, Ronnie Magruder, he basically plays at full speed all the time. And I don't know if this was just him kind of going at full speed and then kind of landing on top of sort of next to Channing Frye and just kind of trying to stop his own momentum by putting his hand out. Maybe that's what it was. It's so hard to know. And I just, in general, have a have a problem with trying to guess people's motivations behind contact. It's just like, I can't, as much as I like Draymond Green being like a dirty player and how entertaining that is, I get sick of that ESPN first take conversation. Did he mean to do it? It's just like, I don't know if he meant to do it. But uh, I thought it was funny that J.R. Smith got all up in arms. But look, I mean, wouldn't Udonis Haslam have done the same thing? Like, if he's on the sideline in his street clothes or whatever, and... And somebody just shoves Rodney Magruder in the back at the end of a dunk after Magruder got dunked on. Wouldn't one of our guys come off the bench and be like, "Dude, what?" Like, and and like bark something at the other guy? Like, probably. No, so I don't have. I think it's just competition. I don't want to read too much into it. It's fine. It got heated afterwards. Also fine. Very. It's fun. Nobody got hit. Nobody got hurt. Nobody got suspended. It's fine. Uh, I wonder what the reaction to like. I, I mean, obviously, J.R. Smith hasn't spoken to it. Was the reaction to the fact that he yammed on him with uh, you know a little time to play in the middle of a blowout, or was it because of the perceived shove? And I, I thought I've it was seen, the shove. I see. I, I don't think he commented exactly on what the issue was, and I think everybody's looked at it now and said there was a quote unquote shove. I didn't see it that way. It seemed like a quick slap more than anything else. Kind of like a like a hey, buddy. You just got dunked on, kind of a reminder. Which I don't. The whole thing, like again, I mean, we don't want to get too much into the, the the reasoning behind it. But the whole thing seemed weird. Like Magruder's not that kind of player anyway. He doesn't talk at all. He's not flashy. Let's talk smack. Yeah, he's, right. He's not like that at all. You know, I, I can't imagine that he was doing it to embarrass, uh, you know, an 11, 12 year veteran like Channing Fry or whatever. I'm not quite sure what the motivation could have been for that. So it, it, the whole thing was, it played out rather bizarrely in a game when Miami was just absolutely dominant. Right. What was weird to me was it. that LeBron and J.R. Smith and all these guys were resting. And it's like, right. like you didn't, right. you prepared for this to not be competitive. So why right. are you getting all up in arms when you're not being? And they kept fl- flashing over LeBron and Jr. on the sideline. They were just joking around and laughing. Well, they didn't care. They didn't care at all whether or not they sure. won or lost this game. They were resting. Absolutely. It was. A, it was. A, it was a, they scheduled the loss for themselves in order to rest, and that is okay. And for Jr., I don't. I don't know if. See, that's why I was like, I don't think it was because he Ronnie McGregor dunked in with a minute left. I don't think that he cared because this was by design a game that was not supposed to be competitive. So mm-hmm. to be that's a, and that's a, a competitive anger. I thought it was hey, you shove well, you know how, in the back. That's not cool. You know you know how it is with baseball though. Like you don't sh- like baseball is different in that there's these all you know slew of unwritten rules that you can't violate yeah. the sanctity of and maybe that's just the imagination of baseball Do players. Do you think and- J.R. Smith cares a lot about un- unwritten rules though? Does he? I mean maybe he doesn't. Uh, I shouldn't say he doesn't, but it's possible like I, like I could if he see cares him about anything. Pissed off if- was like, yo, why you got to go that extra mile to yam yeah. on my boy Channing when you guys are already up 25 and there's a minute left? Yeah. I mean like, you know, pump the brakes a little baby, you know, you're Roddy Magruder, you you're on basically on a 10 day here. You know, why are you doing that? You know, that kind of, I can see him. And then I, even Josh Richardson, to his point, was like, you know, JR hasn't played in a while. He's probably itching to play. So he was probably like really pumped up. Like he, these guys are, are watching these games and they probably develop the same adrenaline levels that they would if they were actually in the game, especially after sitting out for a good amount of time. And you have no outlet for that. You know, you're watching the games, you're getting psyched up, you're, you're sitting there stewing. 
basically as you're watching your teammates get blown up and you're kind of frustrated. And so that, that leaked out there at that last minute. I, I think it was the dunk, maybe the shove, maybe a combination of both. Who knows? I always found it interesting that neither Channing Fry made a big issue of it or Magruder made a big issue out of it. And uh, uh, Richard Jefferson sat next to uh, Fry in the locker room and said, don't make it a story. It's not a big deal. Don't make it a story. So I, I think it's to go back to the original question, though, it adds a certain level of entertainment that I think might be missing from Miami, Boston. Like, I think Miami, yeah. Boston probably match up better, but I think there's something to be appreciated of the matchup against LeBron. I would rather Cavs. watch. Look, understand if we just if we understand that the Heat are going to lose that first round series. Regardless, yeah. Then I would rather them lose to Cleveland because that would at least be more entertaining. Because I'm, I'm with you. Sure. I'd rather just watch the Heat try their darndest to, to win a game, like, in Cleveland or something. Like, that would be more fun to me, but... Um, Can you okay. imagine the excitement in Miami? Sorry, the, yeah. you know, if Miami's wins that third game here at home, There's, and they go down two one in the series, and everyone, so all, all of a sudden, everybody in, in Miami's thinking we've got a chance. Mathematically, right. there's a chance. That'll be a great like couple of days. Yeah, <laughs> it would be exactly, before the eventual thirty point blowout. <laughs> um, all right, next question. Um, the following is an excerpt actually from a hot hot hoops fan post uh, called. Hmm is too much being asked of Hassan Whiteside. And this was brought to our attention by Billy Kuhn in our, uh, our mailbag. So uh, he kind of pasted, copy and pasted a majority of the article. So I just picked out the key... I tried to uh, pick out the key pieces. And then basically he's asking us for our opinion on this. So here, I'm, I'm just going to read this little excerpt really quick. Um, there are only two centers that average more minutes than Whiteside while also having a higher usage rate. Those players are Carl Anthony Towns and Marcus Saul. Perhaps we should cut White's and later on this is afterwards. Perhaps we should cut Whiteside some slack for the occasional lazy jumper that for Marcus Saul is a savvy energy saving play. Maybe we can forgive him for not challenging a shot that Carl Anthony Towns is not even in position to track. Might we make an allowance for a lack of transition quickness when DeMarcus Cousins is still back at the baseline arguing with the refs. So the question being, and here and our opportunity to re, uh, react to it is, are we being too hard on Hassan Whiteside? Should we cut him some slack? Because as this article points out, this fan post, um, Whiteside is, has a lot on his shoulders defensively. The Heat mm. funnel everything to, towards him defensively. Um, he's asked to cover up for a lot of things. He's asked to do a lot of things even offensively. More so in the earlier in the season, they've stopped using him as much in the post and stuff since Waiters and Dragic have gotten going and gotten healthy. But in general, David, what do you think? Should we be should we look at it more maybe through this lens and cut Whiteside some slack? Um, it's a difficult question to navigate, at least for me. And I think I think you could use uh, the the writer's perspective and, and say maybe we are asking a little too much of Whiteside but I also think that it's up to Whiteside to play a much more dominant role than he has on occasion and I think there are glaring instances of him not being fully engaged and I, I, I read the full article by Jay Nico at least, at least that's his username via Hot Hot Hoops and shout out to the Hot Hot Hoops fan posts which is where I began my writing career three and a half years ago but anyway um, it shout was out. an like interesting that shout out that was a good one yeah it was uh, it, it was you know basically that he, he's conserving energy because he's you know used so much defensively because he is the funnel 
through which, you know, the defense is, is maintained, you know, going to running guys off the three point line, making sure that he's the rim protection at the end there and then asking him to to, you know, catch lobs or be engaged on the offense, et cetera. Uh, he's expending so much more energy than any other player on the court. I, I personally don't buy it. I could see how you could argue that. Like his one of his argument points were that he's running further than any player because he starts off under the rim on defense and then arguably has to go under the rim on offense as well. I don't I'm sure that there are numbers indicating, um, you know, I, I know there are numbers indicating how much players run per game. And I would venture that Whiteside does not run more than a, a Goran Dragic or a Wayne Ellington who is constantly cutting in around screams and, and weaving through traffic, et cetera. So I, I think, well, I think know, his, his, points, his other point was that, like, it's harder for a guy that's seven feet, 265 pounds to do that than it is for a six foot two Goran Dragic. Maybe. Sure. I uh, mean, just because of the, you know, the amount of weight that, sure. that, that you have to carry. But um, but I think he's playing less minutes per game than, than Shaquille O'Neal at his heaviest weight, which was probably close to 400 pounds. Mm-hmm. I mean, Alonzo Mourning was arguably the same size and, and uh, you know, he, he played more minutes per game. I think the game has changed a lot in that regard that players certainly play less. I know he's played in every game and, and certainly that's to his credit. Uh but I just don't necessarily agree with all the different points in support of that argument. I do agree uh, with the general theory premise. that there is a finite yeah. amount of energy that players have, right? And given that, should we cut him some slack because of his responsibilities on both the offensive and defensive end for the Heat? That because of those responsibilities, he has to expend basically all of that finite amount of energy. And that his energy varies from night to night. We've seen this. I mean, we've seen... You know, nights where he's dominant and nights where maybe he's not as rested and he doesn't perform as well. And so given that, I, I agree with that that theory in general, okay? That Whiteside has a, yes. a certain amount of energy and so he can only do a, a, a certain amount of things with that energy. My problem is I don't know that he necessarily expends that energy in the most efficient way. And this okay. is our problem with why he chases blocks. He's using a lot of energy to chase those blocks where he could... You look at a guy like Marcus Saul, heck, you look at a guy like Robin Lopez or Andrew Bogut, you know, guys that are not even in the same conversation, and they right. are really good at affecting plays defensively without moving a whole lot. They are just able to maybe move two or three steps in one direction or the other and affect the play just because they're so big. Whiteside, when he's chasing blocks, he's chasing blocks like he's a guard. Like he is leaping up, he is jumping up, he is trying to, you know... Uh, uh, go from one end of the key to the other with these, you know, huge bounds and steps. And, and you know, I, I love the energy that he plays with, but I don't know that it's the most efficient way to use that energy where you look at maybe an Andrew Bogut and might, might be able to learn some lessons from him who uh, Bogut at his peak was able to just maybe move two steps to the left and completely change where the ball handler was going just because Bogut mm-hmm. is so big. And Whiteside right. has that size. We We talk about all the time how he's able to just change shots and change right. offenses because he's so large and I don't know that he necessarily uses it like that. I mean, like I said, he he he's jumping up like crazy like he's 6 foot 4. He's 7 feet tall. He doesn't have to jump most of the time to affect a shot and I think he does that too much where he's chasing blocks and he leaves his feet and these are the things we have problems with all the time. We have a problem with it because he now when you jump up and leave your feet, you're out of position defensively. That's the first problem with it. The second problem with it is that it uses a lot more energy than just maybe stepping to the left a couple of steps and just turn it and and deviating the ball handler away from the rim. Right. 
So maybe that's where he can maybe learn his first lesson. And then, look, I don't have a problem with him taking mid-range shots. Um, I have a problem with him when he's taking bad mid-range shots. Like, we talked about that mm. weird, like, push shot that he takes from the free throw line every once in a which while. Which he practices. Which he practices. And we have video <laughs> evidence of that. Which is, a, like, look, if that's going to be his thing, that could be his thing. And it's it, it goes in sometimes, but it's not an efficient shot. And I'd rather that, I'd rather him find a a cutter underneath the basket than take that shot, right? right. It's, it's not that what he's doing is bad. It's that the alternative is so much better, so much, so often. That's a good point. That's and, a good point. And it, yeah. No, I mean, I was going to say, I, I look at, you know, DeAndre Jordan as a guy who's a comp, obviously, and while his numbers, as far as his usage rate, is, is far lower, um, you know, part of that, as far as as Whiteside is concerned, what could alleviate those the, the pressure of having to put up shot after shot is if he was just more active in passing the teammates. I mean, yeah. that that's that's how he could take some of the burden off of himself is by commanding that double team and kicking it out to a wide open shooter. I was reading a quote uh, the other day. Tyler Johnson was when they told him that uh, his career high was three assists. That Hassan yeah. Whiteside's career high was three assists, and he was like, his eyes like got big, and he's like, "That's it. We need to work on that." Because they know that there's so much opportunity there. That's exactly it. Right. It's, it's the opportunity cost that we're talking about with this finite amount of energy that Whiteside's working with. And just in a, in a general sense, just to kind of underscore this whole point, maybe we're being too hard on him sometimes. And I've admitted that I am, I am hard on Hassan Whiteside. Maybe yeah. it's because of the contract. Maybe it's because of, and I think it's because of the potential. And I always, I look at him and I'm like, I don't mind the hook shot. But there's maybe two or three things right now that would be better than the hook shot. And so good it's point. sexy and it looks good when it goes in. And this is why the post game has survived as long as it did in the NBA is because it looks good. It goes in sometimes. You have a seven-foot player near the rim. It makes sense logically or even aesthetically to look at that guy and watch him try to get the ball in the hoop. But we've learned through analytics and advanced stats and all these things that the post game is the most inefficient shot in all of basketball and actually passing out of the post is extremely more efficient. And so when, it, when his hook shot goes in, it looks good, but the stats say that's, that's the worst thing he probably could have done in that situation. It would be better Absolutely. to kick it out to Luke Babbitt in the corner for a three pointer. But, and to underscore this whole thing again is, is just the general idea that Eric Spolstra takes Whiteside out often because of lack of energy. We saw it against the Orlando Magic, right? That he took him out right. a couple of times because he wanted more energy on the defensive end. So I trust Eric Spolstra in the sense where maybe you and I are being, and people in general are being too hard on Whiteside, but so is Eric Spolstra. Eric Spolstra expects more. And if he expects more just from an energy standpoint, then I'm going to expect more. Yeah, and I think, again, the inconsistency is the tough part, I think, for a lot of people to, to you know, you, you pointed at, the fact that there's greater potential there that he always or, or, or usually falls short of realizing. And that's a good point. But it's also the fact that there's just maddening inconsistency there. Like we, we don't know what version of him mm. is going to show up on a night to night basis. And, and, you know, there is certainly fatigue and exhaustion to contend with. But at the same time, it's, it's when he's not setting a good screen at the start of the first quarter that you wonder, well, where is the energy going to all of a sudden come up? Is he going to find it in the second quarter? Is he going to find it after halftime in the third? I mean, we've seen in the past 
that the third quarter is always a time when he starts to shine for whatever reason, maybe when other guys are getting fatigued. Maybe he's actively conserving it, but I don't know that he necessarily has the, the wherewithal to realize, oh, I'm going to be dominant in the third quarter rather than the first. But even then, it, it usually sets the team back. I mean, we've seen Miami get into a big hole that they can't climb out of, and maybe – that could be changed if he was more active and engaged at the start of the game rather than midway through it. And so I think that overall inconsistency adds to the the distaste that a lot of fans feel for for his, you know, his overall performances at times. And it's just look, you're right. Like why wouldn't he set a better screen? I think in general, setting a better screen and passing the teammates more often expends less energy than it does Absolutely. for him to just get the ball in the post and go to work and start trying to dribble it and spin and do all these things. And try really hard to create post moves on the fly, which is sort of what he does, right? So if he were to set better screens and if he were to pass the ball to his teammates more often, he would expend less energy. And that's the whole point is I don't have a problem necessarily all the time with his energy level, even though that could certainly be an issue at times. It's just where he chooses to place that energy and use that energy. And it just seems to be the flashy, let me try to get in the post and, and cook or let me go and block this shot. And those are like the two places where he spends so much of his energy, where if we're looking about like an 80-20 rule here, he doesn't necessarily fall into the 80-20 rule the best way. I mean, he's using twenty. He's probably using 80% of his energy for 20% of the results. And 80% of his energy goes into post moves and chasing blocks, and he probably only actually gets those things successfully 20% of the time, where it should probably wow. be the inverse of that, but... Yeah. Well, speaking of expending energy, one place you don't have to expend energy or use too much of it is when you order tickets online. You know why, Wes? Well, I know why, because I use SeatGeek, because it's the smartest and easiest way to find tickets. There's nothing like being in the arena for the biggest moments of the season. And with SeatGeek, it doesn't get any easier to get the guaranteed seats that you want at a great value. And as you're talking about, David, you don't have to use any energy. Just how much energy does it take you to open up a web browser and type in SeatGeek.com? Not much. How much energy does it take to just whip out your phone, download the SeatGeek app from the App Store? Hardly any. I mean, it barely takes any energy to put in the promo code LOHEAT, and it's worth it to save $20. I don't know how much time, I don't know how much uh, your time is worth, but it probably takes like four or five seconds to put that promo code in, which is going to result in $20. So I don't know the math, but that sounds like $1,000 an hour type of comparison. So um, if you're, you're a little off, but I think the point. Hour, that's the way to go. <laughs> you might be a little off, but I think the point is made though. <laughs> Look, the SeatGeek app's on my phone. I use it all the time uh, to shop for tickets. We just got, and don't make fun of me, uh, actually my girlfriend, she has a SeatGeek app on her phone. Get that. Ooh. She listened to me. Imagine that. And uh, John Mayer is coming to town. <laughs> so now we're going to John Mayer, uh, which I'm very excited for, is why I'm not saying, is why I'm saying don't make fun of me. So we're going to John Mayer because we got teats, uh, uh, seats from SeatGeek. Um, with the SeatGeek app, you always get the best deal on every ticket because the SeatGeek app price compares for you by searching multiple ticket sites. This is why we're, ta- we're saying you don't have to expend any energy to do it. Prices can vary depending on where you shop, but SeatGeek will always find you. The lowest available price. It's having it's having somebody work for you to find you great tickets. SeatGeek wants to help you get the most bang for your buck. That's why every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value. You'll immediately see any underpriced seats and be able to find the best deals that fit your budget. And best of all, all of their tickets are 100% guaranteed 
to be legit. Best of all, our listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. How do you do it? Download the SeatGeek app or go to the website, go to the settings tab, click add a promo code, enter the promo code LOHEAT. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your very first ticket purchase. I don't know how many times I have to tell you how many beers $20 is, but I'm going to need all of those beers for this John Mayer concert. Download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code LOHEAT today. I hope he plays like Stop This Train or something like that or uh, Your Body's in Wonderland. Those are good ones. Oh, are are they? Between Mr. Banana Pancakes and Mr. Body's in Wonderland, I'm starting to question your taste in music, my man. I mean, look, I I understand having to fulfill a commitment to the significant other, but... uh, that's starting to become questionable and somewhat torturous. I don't. I don't know. I, I'm. I'm waiting for it. I thought the worst thing that I'd ever had to endure was go see uh, the other Boleyn girl, or I don't even know what the hell it was called. It was something like that. A terrible, terrible movie starring Natalie Portman some years ago. That was rather painful for me to watch. Oh, is that the one where she's like royal something? Like, yeah, it was like Henry the Eighth. I think Hugh Jackman yeah. played Henry the Eighth or something like that. That was. Yeah. Uh, yep. You want to know a funny story about that? I dragged my sure. girlfriend in to see that. You dragged her, not the other way around? Oh, wow. She hated it. Hey. Yeah. Well, because I'm like a okay. history guy, and I'm like, oh, yeah, this would be great. I was like taking like a European history class at the time. when No, no. No, no. No, no I wasn't. That has very little to do with history. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, know. other than it was set historically, yeah. Yeah, it no, was like it not today. It was many, many years ago. It was the only thing I had to do with it. I didn't know. I never watched a trailer. <laughs> oh, it was a book. It was a really badly written book that uh, – my wife had read, and uh, that's that's why she wanted to go see the movie. So she dragged me along. I was like, sure. She, I think she sweetened the deal with like some lunch or beers afterwards or something like that. I was like, yeah. yes. I, I drank a whole bunch of them to forget that thing ever happened. <laughs> All right. Well, I like Jack Johnson and John Mayer, and I like Natalie Portman in anything she's in. So I love banana pancakes, so I guess we're even. <laughs> All right. Speaking of banana pancakes... Here's our third mailbag question. How's that for a segue? It's, is it about banana pancakes? It is. Um, here's our next question from Big Pat. Uh, it's tough watching games where Miami's front court pick and roll defense and their inconsistency in protecting the paint affects wins and losses. What is their best option to correct this for the stretch run? Now, this came in, I believe, after our the Magic game, I want to say. It might have hmm. even been after the, Ma- the Mavericks game that lost. No, I think it was after the Magic loss. Uh, so Willie Reed had been out for a while. So the Heat weren't getting all of their usual minutes at center that they have. And uh, they were using O'Kara White a little bit at backup center. And so there were certainly some inconsistencies. And I think the other part of this is that in that Magic game, Nick Vucevic was destroying the Heat in pick and pop and pick and rolls because Whiteside wasn't coming all the way out. And we were talking about his his inconsistency and his energy output. And he wasn't coming all the way out to the, to the perimeter to guard Nick right. Vucevic, who we know has that perimeter jumper. Sure. And... And and Spolster took him out, and without Willie Reed and all this stuff, that it, it it obviously was a problem for Miami. They ended up losing the game. So well, Willie Reed is back. He played a little bit in that Cleveland game. It seems like he's going to return. That's a very very good sign. But in general, do the Heat have a problem with this? I I would say so. I mean, again, we we've we discussed it at length. We've discussed it before about Whiteside and his inability to to guard the pick and roll. Um, certainly there have been issues there. Maybe he could be saving it for a playoff or for a stretch run, but we've seen, you know, his inability to just turn it on and off. I, I, there are games where it's better than most. Unfortunately, the, the norm is still, you know, that it's not particularly good at times and teams will exploit it. 
So I think that's just something you have to deal with. Uh, you know, we've married our fortunes to Hassan Whiteside and his ability to guard the pick and roll, and that's part of it. And that's why they changed the defensive schematics the way they have. That's why they run things the way they do. And I, I think there's only one way to do it. Is you can't you can't do anything to change it, and you have to accept it. So I, it's probably not the answer, Big Pat. And a lot of fans are looking for. But you know, by the way, great name there. I love getting emails from a guy named Big Pat. Big Pat um, eats a lot so. of banana pancakes. Big. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't think there's anything else you can do. Maybe uh, take out Whiteside occasionally and start James Johnson. Maybe get him playing. I at think the that's center the position. answer. I think you're absolutely <laughs> right. Well, I, if let's go back to our first question, a first round matchup. Look, the, we're talking about the Heat not having a chance in that. That doesn't mean Eric Spolster and the team are going to approach the game like that. They're going to make adjustments to try to win that series. And if it's Cleveland or if it's Boston. They both have centers that can destroy Miami in these in these high pick and rolls and pick and pop situations because they know Whiteside won't come out, and if he does, he won't do it effectively. Um, whether it's Kelly Olynyk, Al Horford, Kevin Love, Channing Frye, I mean, these are all guys that those teams could play at center and use to attack Whiteside in that situation. Maybe I like that idea of moving James Johnson to the five for certain periods of time, like if if. The Heat are playing the Cavaliers, and the Cavaliers come in with that small ball unit where they put Channing Fry at the center right. position. Right. Maybe moving James Johnson to center for a couple minutes works. Maybe that's something that makes sense. Um, but you're, in general, the Heat have formulated a system with white, everybody chasing guys off the three-point line and funneling them towards Whiteside and willingly giving up mid-range shots because that's the, the lesser of all the evils. Rather than, you know, try to blitz and trap like those big three Heat did with Chris Bosch at center, they're not going to do that with right, right side at center. Right. Instead, they're going to play a numbers game. And they realize the mid-range shot is, is, a, is a, a, a very inefficient shot. We'll give that up more than we'll give up threes or shots at the rim. And that works for the most part until you're playing somebody like Nick Vucevic or players even better, like guys that are on the Celtics or the, or the Cavaliers, that can basically snuff that out by being centers out on the perimeter who can shoot from there. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, we should have probably discussed that possibility when we were addressing the first question, as far as the, the Cavs versus Celtics potential matchup there. And, you know, Boston does have weapons to exploit Miami's defense there. So, I mean, conversely, Olenek isn't going to be able to stop Whiteside on pick and roll situations. He can do his right. best to, to guard him uh, and maybe yeah, you know, slow him down a little bit, but he's not going to be able to prevent him outright. So there's a give and take there. Now, I wouldn't want to give up, again, to the an analytic perspective and why it's such an efficient shot. I wouldn't want to give up an analytic three-pointer just to be able to occasionally cash in on, on a dominant pick-and-roll situation for Whiteside either. So or it's uh, even worse, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, there's, well, is, there's that's some... That's the general problem with guys like Whiteside right now. That's why big centers like Whiteside are right. being phased out of the NBA and not making uh, max-level contracts as much anymore is because the, you gotta you got to take them off the floor at the end of games so often because they're so limited. They're not as versatile as other guys. They're, they're right. dominant. They're as dominant as anybody else, but they're just not as versatile, and so it limits your options, which is what we're seeing with Whiteside sometimes. So as far as what options do they have, this is when you and I talk about how does Whiteside fit into the Heat in the future? And it's really not even the Heat. How does he fit in? How do players like Whiteside fit in with the NBA going forward? Can league, you pay yeah. them the big bucks like that? Can you... Can you afford to put so much of your cap space into a guy that might have to come off the floor in certain situations? 
That's has he has he shot any three pointers in gameplay? Whiteside, nothing. I mean, maybe if he has, nothing of note. Like he doesn't. Okay. Do it. Yeah. No, I know. Yeah, and I don't think he even does it like in practice or anything like that. But yeah. I think that's probably the next evolution. So I mean, if we're worried about that one-handed push shot, I can't just imagine when he oh, starts geez. pulling up for three. Look, I think he's got. He's Whiteside has an underrated touch to his jumper. It's like if he were to practice his jumper, I really do think he could be a three-point shooter. If Brooke Lopez could become a three-point shooter, good point. Hassan Whiteside can definitely do it. The problem with Whiteside is not offensively. I believe he could shoot threes at a 30% clip. I have no question about that. If he practiced enough, he could do it. But it's on the de- on the defensive end. I don't think he can. He's too flat-footed. He's too slow. I don't he can't guard guys out on the perimeter. He just I don't think he physically has that in him. And I think that's okay. Really I do I don't I think using him on the perimeter to guard like that would be mismanaging his talent. Like and his his skill set I think he is so dominant and potentially dominant under the rim and protecting the paint that to have him out there on the perimeter would be wrong. So if you yeah. can figure out how to get to guard those guys on the perimeter in another way, maybe it's double teaming guys on the perimeter and trapping them with everybody other than Whiteside. You know, just playing a, a one in four out defense where your Whiteside's just constantly guarding the paint and you've got the other four guys guarding the five guys out on the perimeter somehow. You know, with a uh, Thibodeau-style defense. Maybe it's something like that, but now we're just really getting in the weeds with coaching strategies here, but um, that's it. Like, the, the best option here is just keep playing the numbers game, and hopefully it works out. But, Let's move on to our fourth and last question, then. Hey, guys, I've been looking at a few mock drafts lately, and I don't really understand why some fans aren't rooting for the playoffs. We're out of contention for any of the elite players in the draft, and if we slot somewhere from 12 to 18, we'll be able to get a power forward in parentheses, our biggest need, and we'll basically have our pick of the litter. All these guys could be available and could play well next to Whiteside. Isaiah Hartenstein, Hartenstein, Robert Williams, Jonathan Motley, John Collins, Ivan Rabb, Harry Giles. Which of these guys do you like the most? They all fill a need and more, and most offer potential stretch for abilities. Seems like just what we need. Thank you. From Sam Danes. It's a, a really interesting point there, one that hasn't been brought up in, in context of the season. So I, I understand Sam's question, and I think it's a great one. But at the same time, I think fans generally tend to look at the season in an either-or scenario. Either you're tanking and getting one of the top picks in the draft, or you're making the playoffs because you're a legitimately contending team. So I think, you know, as of two weeks ago, there was still the potential for Miami to make major moves at the trade deadline where they could increase their chances of being one of the worst teams in the league mm-hmm. and possibly get a much better draft pick. So I, I think that's, you know, it, it's only something recent where you, you can realize that Miami's fully engaged this season and, and making the playoffs or trying to do the best that they possibly can. Uh, that winning has a karma to it that is it's in the best interest of this team to continue to win because you're not going to get a great draft pick or anything like that and and still concentrate on on getting the draft pick that you will have and making the most of that so there are certainly some good options here at the four uh and, and you know sam does bring up that good point that power forward where we're currently starting luke babbitt and bringing james johnson off the bench is arguably our weakest position we had the the power forward belt going early in the season before James Johnson took a leap in his place simply because we didn't know who was going to show up from a night-to-night basis. And then, of course, Johnson wound up winning the power forward belt on a regular uh, basis because he was just so transcendent. Um, so I, I think clearly there is a need there. Um, I, you know, a lot of these players I haven't really seen much of. I know you've mentioned we've talked about Ivan Rabba occasionally. 
Um, have you seen any of these other guys and recognized any uh, abilities they might have where they could fit in nicely to Miami system? Well, I've watched some like shaky German footage of Isaiah Artenstein, and mm-hmm. he looks good. I'm, I think we might have talked. We've talked about this for we sure. We did talk about it. We talked about it on the podcast. But yeah, I think we did actually. Okay. Yeah, Robert Williams from Texas A&M. I really like him. Uh, he's like a six eleven, seven foot center who shows some three point range. He's really athletic. Uh, he's really raw, but he's moving up draft boards. I like the idea of Robert Williams a lot as a maybe a five a, a small ball five type guy. Maybe play some power forward. Jonathan Motley from uh, Baylor. Haven't really watched a lot of him. I tried watching the Baylor game yesterday. They were playing Texas, but I caught the end of it. And Motley didn't really do anything of note. But he's long. Like that's the thing. That's like he's just long. John Collins, mm-hmm. Wake Forest. Um, just another long guy. I've seen a lot of people talk a lot about him, but to be honest, I don't really watch a lot of Wake Forest college basketball. Just really not mm-hmm. not on my uh, NBA team uh, playlist. But Ivan sure. Rab, I've seen him in person a lot. Uh, he's an NBA rebounder right now. Right. Um, he sets good screens. He does a lot of the little things really well. He's not aggressive. He doesn't really flash a three-point shot, even though he looks like he should. He doesn't. And I think that's a mix- misconception with Ivan Rab. He's mostly a post guy. He's more mm-hmm. polished in the post than Whiteside is already, but um, the Heat don't need rebounding. They have the best rebounder in the game. I don't think that they need Rab, even though he's an NBA-level rebounder right now. Uh, even though I do like the potential fit of Rab next to Whiteside, if Rab can develop a better mid-range offensive game. If he can kind of find like that early Chris Bosh, LaMarcus Aldridge type of 18-footer, right. that works really right. well next to Whiteside. We don't necessarily need people to stretch out all the way to the three-point line, but just a little bit. Uh, Harry Giles was considered the number one overall pick, but that was before a couple of injuries. He hasn't really played a lot for Duke, and I'm honestly, I don't know if Harry Giles comes out at this point. He might be better just staying at Duke for another year and just recovering from this injury and getting picked higher because at this point he's going he's gonna to get picked in the late first round. So I think Giles just stays for another year, but that's just my guess. Um, you know, this might not be the right time to address this question but you wonder why the draft is shaped up the way it has you know the potential drafts obviously things can change where you're you're so point guard and or shooting guard heavy at the top of the draft mm-hmm. and then later on you've got more front court positions that look like they could fill out and you wonder whether or not it's because offenses have changed somewhat or there's more emphasis on floor spacing and scoring and things That's of that exactly. sort Let's go back to the 2011 draft really quick because this draft starts to remind me a little bit of, of the 2011 draft, right? You had mm-hmm. a bona fide number one all, overall pick, Kyrie Irving, right? Was the first pick in the draft. He got he was injured for most of his career at Duke, his first year, his only year at Duke. But he was taken number one overall by the Cavaliers, obviously. And uh, after that, I mean, you had guys like Derek Williams get picked, and he was a bust. But beyond Whoa, that, wait, hey, busts. That's I don't like being. I don't like tossing that term around. Okay. He didn't play as well as the usual second round picks do, or second overall picks do. Um, but in that draft, you had great point guards like Kemba Walker, Brandon Knight. You know, we could talk about Brandon Knight and how he's done in the NBA, but he was a he was a freshman in Kentucky that was a top ten pick. Jimmer Fredette. Um, I mean, these are guys. Clay Thompson was out there as a guard. Uh, there was a lot of guards out there. Alec Burks. It was a very guard heavy draft. But at fifteen, who did you have get picked? Kawhi Leonard. So you have guys that kind of fall through, and that's what maybe, well, not maybe, but that's kind of what Heat fans have to hope for now, is that because it's so guard-heavy at the top, and if you look at the Heat's strengths, 
if we just say that Goran Dragic is here for the long term, point guard's good, right? For the next four or five years, point guard's, that's a spot that we're good at. Uh, you have Tyler Johnson and Josh Richardson locked in for a while. Deion Waiters could resign. I mean, as far guard is not the biggest need for the Heat. It is that forward spot. It's even small forward, right? It does. It depends on what how the Heat view Ronnie Magruder going forward. If they want to play a little bit bigger at that position, do they eventually move Ronnie Magruder to a backup shooting guard spot? I don't know. Or like a tweener, like a uh, just a, a wing tweener. But do they want to get bigger at small forward? Do they want to get bigger and more athletic at power forward? Uh, I think there is a lot of those guys, and that's what our that's what this question is really alluding to, and. It really works out well for Miami uh, as far as where they're going to fall and even taking the best player available. You might have a lot of these kind of long athletic forwards fall in that range. Um, so that's what they, I think maybe the best case scenario is that Miami just gets the most athletic guy, kind of like how Giannis Antetokounmpo was taken at 15. You know, mm-hmm. Kawhi Leonard was really athletic. Uh, maybe you take him. You you just take maybe the most athletic guy there, and try to make the most out of that player, and hope that it hits like one of those two guys. But um, maybe that's the best option for Miami. Yeah, I agree. I think you know you trust the team structure. You trust that Spolstra and the rest of the staff will be able to work with whomever they can find and maximize their talents and and find a a niche for them where they can you know, be the best possible version of themselves they can be. And that's that's all you really hope for in a draft. Yeah. I mean, I, I, as far as a team structure is concerned, you want to be able to integrate various players and, and find the best fit for them and how they mesh their talents well. And if you get lucky, maybe you, you find somebody who, uh, who who becomes a, a transcendent star, but that, that rarely happens there. I'm maybe looking at this draft. Maybe there's now. a certain amount of pressure when you're picking near the top to take point guards, right? Because the exactly. league is so... I mean, wouldn't the Pistons have rather had Kawhi Leonard over Brandon Knight at this point? Like, sure. I mean, that there's so much noise in that too. Just, this, just that statement in general is so loaded that, like, okay, Kawhi Leonard probably doesn't become Kawhi Leonard if he's not on the Spurs, right? Like, right. not to take anything, not to say I'm not saying he's a system player. I know that's a polarizing topic, but the Spurs have an excellent, you know, foundation to put a person to have a rookie play in. Um, but in well, general, Jimmy Butler like, was taken 30th in that draft. Yeah. So it's like, wouldn't you rather have those guys over Brandon Knight? Like, I would. And Jimmer Fredette taking a 10. Like, are you just taking him because three-point shooting is really coming on? Yes. Right. So, uh, at the same time, Clay Thompson got taken 11th, and he's he's a home run. So, look, I, maybe there's a certain amount of pressure near the top of the draft to take more perimeter-oriented three-point shooting type of players, where maybe in the, you know, 14 to 20 range or wherever the Heat are going to fall here, there might be a little bit more freedom, so to speak, to just maybe take a home run swing at somebody. Just grab the most athletic, longest guy possible, somebody that maybe you really believe in, and see what happens. I don't know. No pressure for yeah. these players. And and I trust Miami scouting at this mm-hmm. point. Something that I don't think I, I – either it's changed or evolved or, or, uh, or maybe just more emphasized recently. I, I trust that. And the way that they were able to find a guy like Josh Richardson and things like that, I think that they're they're better equipped for finding talent that might not necessarily stand out to other teams. I think you nailed it earlier, too, in this question when you said a lot of fans are viewing this as either or, tank or make right. the playoffs. The Heat are still right. going to have a draft pick. Let's just right. keep that in mind. And there, this is going to be a deep draft, and there's going to be some talent. And there's going to be somebody in this 14 to 30 range that is going to get picked and make an all-star game, right? That's just stats. That's just how it works usually. Like, there's somebody here that is going to be borderline all-star. The Heat have to pick that player, and they have to make the most out of their pick. So, all right, 
Well, that's all we have for today. Whether you're listening on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, thank you for listening. Get in touch with the show on Twitter at Locked on Heat or by email. You can send us mailbag questions, comments, or sponsorship opportunities. That's LockedOnHeat at gmail.com. And if you're not subscribed already, please do so to get the podcast automatically every day. Then go to iTunes, rate us, review us, say nice things about us. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for joining me, David. You got it, Wes. It's Ace's biggest LED light bulb sale of the year. Right now, buy one, get one free on our best-selling LED light bulbs. Our four-pack of LED bulbs is $9.99, and our two-pack of LED floodlights is only $12.99. Buy one, get one free. There's no limit on how much you can save, so stock up now. Hurry in. Buy one, get one free on long-lasting 10-year LED bulbs, now through Monday, only at your neighborhood Ace. See participating stores for details.